Hello, Internet. Welcome to the Vox Podcast with Mike and Andy. Uh, live, at least as we're recording it, it is live from uh, the great state of Ohio and the great state of California. Um, Cal-Hio is what we're going to call it. It's going to be awesome. Uh, today today is, uh, is the first day of a frost. So I had to literally go out and scrape my windshield for the first time in 20 years. And, and the kid, the kids were like, what, what is this? What is this stuff on our windshield? Why can't why can't we see it was 31 degrees. Nate, Nate has shorts on and Hannah didn't want to wear a coat. So I know they're insane. (laughs) Andy, are you still, is it still like a hundred degrees in California? Aren't there wildfires everywhere? It's finally coming down, at least here on the coast. I I think Timmy is in, uh, is inland. So it's probably, it's probably a little warmer there. 108 two days. 108. Yep. Yep. And uh, that's just because the fires of hell are now consuming the state. <laughs> and um, because we've left, and we were, we're we were the protection. We were the protection. We were, it's like, it's like, you know, Moses lifting his arms, our presence in California protected it, but not so much anymore. So if you didn't, if you didn't guess the guy chirping in the background, isn't just Andy, we've got another chirper today. Tim Mulehoff, ladies and gentlemen, is here with us. Tim is a a great friend. Uh, Tim is a guy who asked me to throw on my Guns N' Roses album in college. Uh, Tim is, it's true, Tim is uh, helping uh, the Vox teaching team. So he is kind of a spiritual father to our community, which we love. And, uh, and Tim also just has a whole lot to say. And so we are super excited to have Tim. He is at Biola. He is not yet tenured. Um, there, I am tenured. Oh, you are tenured? Not revoke my tenure. Oh, you are tenured? Yes. Well, what was the story yesterday about you doing these things without tenure? No, that was, okay, that was a story I told when I first started doing something when I didn't have tenure. But yes, I have tenure. Okay. All right. So now. Like, I'm a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And he's beautifully bald. Yes. And, And for that reason alone. And he's got his brown belt in what? Dude, I got my red belt. Okay. I'm going backwards during this podcast. Pretty All right, red. <laughs> I thought I thought brown was like the second and then black. No, brown, then red, then black. I have my red. You have your red. Yeah, as I'm watching you, I'm thinking of five different ways I would kill you if I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think number one is just set some ice cream out in front of me because I'm looking at my my face right now in the Skype window. Good lord, man! I I'm like this big white orb that just you know vocalizes things. I mean, that's that's what we're looking at. Tim, Tim, you at least have a little bit of a tan, glasses, and facial hair. I've got no distinguishing features other than whiteness, like severe whiteness. Should I have tenure and a red belt? And, and yes, and you have tenure and a red belt and a book that's just come out, right? That we want to talk about today. It's called Winsome Persuasion. And how winsomely persuading do you think that title is? <laughs> I I like it. I, I think winsome's a good word that we need today. It's kind of a forgotten word. Correct. Or or it may be forgotten for a reason. So define, (laughs) let's define winsome for a second. What's winsome? 
Yeah, uh, you know, in context today, we live in the argument culture. That's Deborah Tannen's term, where I just uh, attack your beliefs. I come at you frontally. Uh, this is a debate, so there's a winner, a loser. Uh, humor has died and is gone from the conversation. I don't give you goodwill. I believe the worst about you. And everything is in your face as we discuss immigration, um, yeah. marriage, important issues today. So winsome would be, hey, listen, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let's go sit down and let's have a conversation where you and I don't take each other as seriously. We laugh. We acknowledge uh, points that you make that I think are valid. And we find common ground. It's like I, I'm not interested in having a Bill O'Reilly uh, moment where you have five people yelling at each other. That winsome right. is more like backdoor, let's have a civil, lighthearted even conversation about really important things. And and one of the things that I thought was, was interesting about the book, so you've got I Beg to Differ, which is kind of the, the uh, uh, how to, how to, how to have difficult conversations is kind of my shorthand way of describing it. Um, and, and this one is more, how do we posture ourselves as a minority voice in the public, uh, in the public square? And, and so, so the public square, you say, is, is, is dominated by argument culture. And we represent, and we represent something called a counter public. And you spend a lot of time talking about counter publics. Um, for our audience, what is that? Yeah, counter public is just an academic term that means you're the minority perspective. When it comes to immunizing your children, you believe, yeah, I'm not going to immunize my child. Uh, when it comes to certain social issues, you find yourself being in the minority, not the majority. And quite frankly, the majority could give a rip what you believe. They don't care what you believe because you're the minority perspective. So when you're in that position, how do I get the attention of the power structures? How do I get the attention of uh, the majority? That's a question we've got to ask ourselves as Christians as we increasingly find ourselves in the minority position on certain key issues that we're facing as a country and as communities how do we get back into the conversation in a way that we can speak truth and love? Isn't there, isn't, well, would you agree with this? Because it seems to me that the, 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 pro, the, the concept of counterpublic's interesting, because I, I would think that many Christians would not see themselves that way. Uh, they would see themselves as kind of the inheritors of a Christian nation, and we're fighting a culture war, and... Um, we've been the majority view, you know, doggone it. We need to, you know, make America whatever again. Um, do you think that's part of the problem is, is that we don't yet realize that we're in exile? Yeah, and I think the election of President Trump added to that feeling like, oh my goodness, we won. When you have roughly 80% of evangelicals voting for President Trump, I, I think there is a sense of saying, okay, now we're safe. Now the Supreme Court is safe. Now he's going to protect religious liberty. Now he's going to step in and protect the uh, evangelical agenda. So I think there's even more of a lowering of our guard. But when we talk about public opinion, Mike, um, there was a fascinating study that was done a couple years ago asking non-Christians what is religious fanaticism? What would you put in that mm. category? 
And what they put in the category were things like uh, people who try to convert people are religious fanatics, people who teach their children about sexual purity, no sex before marriage are seen as religious fanatics. Uh, people who define marriage as being traditional, a man and a woman are religious fanatics. So mm-hmm. our, and th- this is the populace, right. let alone laws, and especially in the state of California, that seem to be uh, encroaching upon that religious freedom and that our country has moved to a much more inclusive, pluralistic, broader definition of words, I think we have to realize to get back into the media, to get back into community conversations, we're going to have to think about neighbor love. The book could have been called Winsome Neighbor Love because we're going to have to reestablish our credibility with non-Christians if we're going to get into this conversation. But why not? But why, why, why even engage? I mean, why not choose the Benedict option, as, as one scholar has put it, and just withdraw from engagement altogether. I mean, isn't part of the problem the fact that we're over-engaged in politics, we're over-engaged in the public sphere? So I just finished reading the Benedict Option, and I think it gets some bad press in certain ways. I don't think he's talking about a complete withdrawal from community, but uh, he is. But here's what separates our book from the Benedict Option, and that would be um, sales and royalties. <laughs> <laughs> That's one big thing that separates us. But no, so when you read the first chapter, he really has given up on culture. He compares it to Rome and St. Benedict's response to the fall of Rome. And we just have more hope for culture today. So that's what really separates us is that we don't think we're on the death throes of culture. In the book, we include a letter written by Francis Schaeffer. He's one of the old apologists. And he he writes it about America because he's been away in Europe and now he comes back. And he says in the letter, I'm really fearful for my beloved America. I I believe these are the dark days. I I don't know if America can recover from what is happening. Well, I asked my students, date the letter. When did he write it? And students are saying, you know, mid-1990s, 2000, and I said, 1951. So think about what that predates. That predates the civil rights movement. That predates the AIDS crisis. That predates the porn explosion. That predates sex trafficking, right? So we always tend to think this is the end. Culture is beyond repair, and Mm -hmm. the book is filled with stories from Wilberforce on of people who did a good job of reclaiming culture and getting the Christian perspective into the cultural conversation. So we're just not ready to give up on culture yet. We think that the church can make huge uh, differences in local communities, uh, and that, I think that's important. Yeah. So, so a Christian counterpublic isn't a contradiction in terms Right, I mean, I would, it, and I'm, I'm just kind of making more of a statement. It, it um, I do think it's absolutely critical that followers of Jesus understand our exile well, yeah, and understand the the differences in posture from being a dominant, uh, a dominant cultural force. Because, uh, you know, I think, I, I think you would agree with this. I mean, we've always done our best work from the margins, right? I mean, it's never been a, anytime Christianity's been mainstream, it's died. 
Yeah, our legacy is that is that of a counterpublic. And yeah. uh, when culture is struggling, culture is going through some really tough times, that's when the church can really step up and help. Because you know what? When you're going through a hard time, I don't care who my neighbor is. I'm going to accept help. So right. you mentioned you mentioned that I, I do kung fu, martial arts. Well, there was a really great story that emerged uh, in Houston. There's a man. He calls himself the Black Beast. He's like Whoa. 310 pounds. He's a heavyweight like fighting championship. But he's also a Houston native. So when Houston was going through, you know, that hurricane and massive flooding, he got into a boat. And it's estimated that he saved over 100 people. Well, he turns the corner one day, and there's a man with his daughter draped in the Confederate flag. And the Black Beast turns the corner, and they make eye contact, and the, and the Black Beast says, hey, get, get your daughter, get in the boat. And the guy actually says, hey, I'm, I'm kind of sorry about the flag, but it really means a lot to me. And the Black Beast says, hey, get in the boat. It's a flood. Get your flag, get in the boat. And that, Mike, I think is the church rises to the surface when our communities are going through really hard times. And we say to the very people who might hate us, hey, get in the boat. You guys need help. Jump in. And I think that's the attitude we can take today in our communities as our communities are hurting in many ways and facing social issues. We say, get in the boat. We're going to help you. I don't care if you agree with what I agree with. This is a flood. We need to help. But what's that look like? Because I, I think some will hear that as, all right, that just means we need to be better preachers of the gospel. You know, we're just, we're, we're saving souls off the Titanic. The thing's going down anyway. Um, but I think you mean more than that, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean to make that an analogous to the Titanic at all. Um, no, 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 no. You're not. I was saying that I think some will hear the get in the boat invitation to just mean okay so we just gotta we gotta tell more people about heaven and hell and we've got to have better tracks and we've got to do better a, a better job at sharing our faith that's what the get in the vote a boat invitation means you're not meaning that oh i mean a literal boat in a literal <laughs> flood and your neighbors just lost their house and a guy draped in the most offensive thing to your community so think of the most offensive thing you could think of and this dude is literally getting flag. Uh, this, <laughs> <laughs> this come Lord Jesus, Penn State. Right now, I pray for the running back. I pray for the quarterback. <laughs> but but think about that. That I think the image is so beautiful. He is draped in the most offensive thing you could think of to this one guy who wants to try to help him, and that is the Confederate flag. He says. No, listen, your child is shivering, you're cold, you're homeless, get in the boat, I want to help you. Physically, I want to help you. I want to give you food, I want to give you a warm blanket, and then later we can talk about gospel implications if we want to. But I think the entry point is what we learned in Sunday school when we were little kids if you went to church. People don't care what you think until people know that you care. And I think the church is our stereotype is literally people don't think we care about the transgender community. People don't think we care about um, the gay community or the homeless within our communities. And I'm saying once we reestablish that, hey, we're here to help everybody. We right. care about everybody as the Christian counterpublic. Then I think people start to listen to us 
as we as we hand out blankets, as we address um, suicide rates within the transgender community, then people start to say, you know what? These are good people. I may really disagree with them, but they're good people. And I'll never forget the time you helped me when I, my community needed the help. And I think we need to go back to that kind of mentality. So so is this where the, the concept of loose connections comes in? Absolutely, Mike. All right. So explain that. Yeah, so a loose connection would be, going back to Houston, the, we're not the only one helping people. And by the way, the Black Beast is not a Christian. He's not a Christian from some church helping people. He just wants to help people. So I would say within our communities, let's find other people who want to help. And rather than doing it by ourselves, let's link arms with these people and together serve our community. Now, a ton of benefits are gonna come from that. One, we're gonna be able to address stereotypes we have of each other, because we're literally working with each other. Second, we can have conversations about many different things and improve the communication climate. So instead of our churches just saying, well, we don't need any help because our church is large enough, we've got enough money, we have enough resources, that our church can do everything by ourselves, I'm saying, yeah, but get out there and be good neighbors, link arms with people as you address the homeless issue and other issues, uh, immigration issues that are affecting your community. Do it in partnership because you tend to remember those partners later in conversations about spiritual issues. But Tim, I thought we were not supposed to be unequally yoked, my friend. <laughs> what business do Christian churches have with partnering with you know, secular nonprofits and organizations? Well, this is where we've forgotten our history, Mike. Yeah. Forgotten our history. We, we use Antioch as a test case. Antioch is the first place Christians are called Christians. We actually make the argument in the book that I think it's wrong to assume that that moniker was derogatory. I think it was begrudging respect is this term Christians. The argument that's used to show that it is um, uh, derogatory, I think, is very weak. If you look at what Christians did in Antioch that had massive overcrowding problems, massive sanitation problems, the church made the decision, hey, let's help people. Because when we help Antioch, we're helping ourselves. And so we have a lot of examples of Christians funding projects like road construction, sanitation issues within Antioch, so that people actually looked at Christians in Antioch and said, boy, you're little Christ. I can see you living out um, uh, certain values of this person named Christ. Second, Wilberforce, in order to end slavery and the slave routes in uh, Great Britain, had to have alliances. He literally couldn't do it by himself. And I think that's a good word for the church today. We can't do it ourselves. We need alliances with people who think like us. And our book is filled with a lot of examples of these loose connections between very unlikely parties that get together for a, a, a one single issue that they can work on together. Even though they disagree on lots of other issues. Oh, bitterly disagree. One of my favorites yeah. is focus on the family. I mean, the land of James Dobson, uh, which you couldn't think of a more alt-conservative group. And yet... Uh, you have The Independent, one of the most liberal newspapers in Colorado, and but they both care about foster care. Uh, Jim Daly, the new president of Focus on the Family, is a product of foster care. So he wanted to fix the broken foster care 
Um, and so we went to The Independent and said, hey, let's do this together. Because The Independent ran an article about the broken foster care system. So they actually um, did this weekend event called um, uh, Reclaiming Foster Care or something like that. But they did it together. What's really cool is the editor of The Independent had to sell it to his readers that they're now going to link arms with Focus on the Family. So what he said was to his readers, no, hell hasn't frozen over. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he had to sell it. And Jim Daly had to sell it. Right. These people to say, listen, we're not getting in bed with these people. We still really disagree about the nature of marriage and different issues. But we care about foster care. Let's do it together. Mm. Can I right. add something real fast? Or ask? Mm-hmm. With with all, I don't know if, if you get to this in your in your book exactly either, but I've 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 wrestled with this feeling that it, that we kind of all exist in this privilege bubble of intellectualism, you know, because like what we're talking about is when we stop and recognize the primal essentials of humanity, we 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 just operate outrageously different because all of a sudden we're equal again, you know, like you know we're talking about the black beast seeing another human in a in a moment of complete terror and need. And our ability to respond to that all of a sudden becomes centralized. And I, I feel like we've just arrived in this place and culture where I could jump on social media. I can write a book. I mean, I can pretty much just drop whatever I want out there and let whomever disagree with disagree with. And, and we might not be face to face. We're not in relationship. Like, it just feels like the argument that continues to inflame is just robbed of all humanity. And it just to me, that just that feels like. There needs to be this exodus from the expectation that our intellectualism is what's going to drive our ability to have relationship versus our actual um, like posture together, like real timeness and like actually in relationship together can actually birth and, and help us return back to humanity. Like that, that's that's the tension I, I really feel like I live in. Yes. <clears throat> so, Andy, I play for my students my new favorite podcast. Uh, no offense taken um my new new favorite podcast is by a young gay activist and it's called talking to people who hate me oh and he has a website you know and um so people send in these most hateful um responses to his website so he decided i'm going to create a podcast where i actually call these people and have conversations so the very first one is um he calls this person and says, hey, in your email, you call me a little piece of – and what's so funny, Andy, is the guy walks back all of the vitriol. Mm-hmm. Now, he still maintains his position, but he says, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I was kind of having a bad day. Uh, it's obvious that you're not that. It's obvious that you're not crazy. Uh, but I still believe homosexuality is wrong. I still believe these things. But now that I'm talking to you – I'm going to pull back on some of that um, social media hostility. And so, Andy, I love what you're saying is the Internet allows people two things that I think are unfortunate. One, it allows them to attack a a faceless person. Mm -hmm. And second, there's what we call clicktivism, which is I click on a like, I send out, I repeat an email, and I think that I've ended poverty. (laughs) Saturday Night Live did a phenomenal um, skit about this called Thank You, Bob, where um, Bob is sitting there and uh, he just hits a like about Black Lives Matter. And suddenly all the walls come down. There's black people dancing saying, thank you, Bob, for ending racism. (laughs) 
You're welcome. As he's eating Doritos, <laughs> it's hilarious. So two we, we we don't we're not against um, social media. In our book, we actually say we think social media is the new public square, mm-hmm. and that we better become conversant in social media. But again, all the Christian um, prohibitions against hostile, unloving language still apply on the internet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Boom. Boom. And, and that, that I think, it speaks to uh, a Christian's inability to hold, what, what did you call it, cognitive? Complexity. Uh, complexity, yes. I, I don't know why I have such a hard time remembering that, because I have cognitive simplicity, I guess. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, but, but to be able to do that, to be able to do the things you're talking about, requires us intellectually to do something, I think, that's very unpracticed. I don't, uh, and and it certainly takes practice to do. So explain this a little bit. Explain uh, what the concept is, but then also how you know if you have it. Oh, that's that's a great question. So cognitive complexity is again one of these academic terms that actually talks about something incredibly important that we're lacking today. So cognitive complexity simply asks this question: How elaborate? Are your views of other people or situations, are are they thick, are they complex, or are they simplistic? So cognitive complexity is broken up into three areas. First, how many interpretations do you have of another person? So give me an example. I come home late. Um, I walk through the door. My wife is locked in on one interpretation, and that is you care more about your students than you do me because I made dinner and you're late again. Now, if that's her only interpretation, then her response is locked and loaded as well. She's mad and she's frustrated. But cognitive complexity would say two interesting things. One, even if you're right about your interpretation, you're not cognitively complex. So you would force yourself as you're sitting there and your your spouse is late, what are possible reasons for him being late? So the complexity complexity has to do with not just assuming motive, um, not just assuming one interpretation of the of the behavior. Yeah, but let's not. You just mentioned the second one when you hit motive. Oh, sorry. The, the first one is so simplistic; it's beautiful. How many interpretations do you have of President Trump? How many interpretations do you have of Hillary Clinton? How many interpretations? I mean, do you just think that President Trump's evil? Done. Boom. One interpretation. I don't need any more interpretations. My spouse cares more about work than me. Boom. I don't need any more interpretations. People who care about this social issue, they're liberals, blah, 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 and that's it. I don't need any more interpretations. So I force my students to say, give me more interpretations. I don't even care if you believe them. Give me more possible interpretations, and that slows down my rush to judgment. Okay, that's good. Yep. Second, what are the internal motives? that maybe this person is operating on? What's happened in his or her past to cause him or her to act in in a way that I find offensive? I'd use this illustration um, with my students. When I was growing up, we'd go see the Detroit Tigers play, and we were sitting in right field, me and my two older brothers, with a family friend that took us to the game. In front of us was an African-American couple eating fried chicken. 
It smelled unbelievable. So the three Mealhawk boys were like vultures just smelling this and wanting some chicken. So the woman noticed, turned around, said to me, if your dad says it's okay, you can have some. Well, it wasn't my dad. It was a family friend. So, so I'm like, awesome. Well, I'll never forget his response. He put his hand on my knee, squeezed my knee, said to her, no, thank you. And then leaned over and whispered in my ear, we don't take food from those kind. Now, cognitive complexity. What's your knee-jerk interpretation? He's racist. Mm -hmm. But let's force ourselves to come up with other um, interpretations. Everything from uh, maybe he noticed that these people don't have money. And, and he does have money. My parents have given him money to buy us hot dogs at the seventh inning stretch. Maybe they're wearing the uniform of the other team, and he hates that, right? I would not take food from an Ohio State Buckeye. I could be starving, and Ohio State Buckeye would offer me food and I'd say, no, thank uh, No, thank you. I'm a Christian. Lord, may, may that be true. <laughs> may that, yes. All right, so I need to know what's his internal motive. So you know what you find out about this family friend? In 1968, there were race riots in Detroit. The National Guard was actually deployed. There was a new movie that came out this summer called Detroit. And uh, his family business was burnt to the ground, and he didn't have adequate insurance. Never recovered from this. So he's angry towards African Americans for what happened to his family business. Now, that does not excuse his comment. But it puts it in context that now I can have empathy and maybe even sympathy as I argue against his racist um, perceptions. Third aspect, I think this is the most important one and the most neglected one. Do you notice any contradictory information? Like, for instance, you can say President Trump is evil, done. The third part of cognitive complexity is, but do you notice anything about him that's not evil? So I, I, I said one time uh, to a group of adults, Hey, listen, I'm not I'm not a President Trump person, but I can think of three things off the top of my head. When Hurricane Harvey hit, he promised one million dollars of his own money to relief aid. Uh, number two, uh, he he is for religious freedom and seems to put somebody on the Supreme Court who would protect religious freedom. Third, he cares about veterans and promises to overhaul the VA and has shuttled a bunch of money towards the VA. So cognitive complexity is. Do you really think this person's evil A to Z? Can you not see any contradictory information that you need to make sense of? That, to me, is a cognitively complex person. All right, so I, let, let's let's kind of apply this. Um, I throw something out on the internet. I get a flaming, <laughs> I get a flaming response um, uh, that you feel misunderstood, you feel labeled, you feel stereotyped, you feel judged. What does uh, a Christian counterpublic voice look and sound like in that moment, engaging in this kind of cognitive complexity uh, that you're talking about? I would say two things. The book of Proverbs says a wise man overlooks an insult. So I don't think we want to get into what the argument culture prescribes, which is, hey, you, you insult me, I'm insulting you double. You, you talk to me in a sarcastic tone, I'm hitting you with massive sarcasm. So I think what we do is we set aside that flaming email and uh, make sure we're spiritually able to respond. Again, I, I think what's missing, Mike, 
from a lot of our discourses, we don't walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Peter says, I want you to respond to an insult with a blessing, Peter doesn't say that you have to agree with that person, that you still can't debate that person, but I want you to do it with a sense of blessing. Paul would say, speak the truth, do it in love. Right. So I would say, take a, take a breather before you, and again, we've all been in that situation where I get that email, and man, I'm ripping off a response as fast as I can type something and hit send. And I think we need to back away from that a little bit, make sure we have perspective before we respond. And then we want to ask the broader question, what is the purpose of this conversation? What's the purpose of it? Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to just let that person vent and even acknowledge the frustration, if I lived in that person's shoes, I'd be equally frustrated as you are right now. And if, and if you believed about Christians um, that were egotistical, were hate mongers, then I'd be mad at me as well. So maybe right. we don't just launch into a rebuttal, maybe we do a little bit of perspective taking to find out, hey, where's all this anger coming from? What's happened? It seems like you're very angry about this issue. Help me understand a little bit about the anger that's fueling this kind of response. Dang. Andy, you got a did you take notes on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, verbatim. I, I I would repeat it back literally, but I think that just might blow your minds that we'd have to sh- end this podcast. <laughs> By the way, easy to do when the three of us are having a philosophical conversation. Oh, Correct. Of course when you actually get the email right talk are you what what and you just launch um we have to be careful of that i don't think that we're christians i think rage is one of the i don't think we're allowed to go there very often now later we can talk about the prophetic voice as compared to the persuasive voice that's what i'm talking about not later let's do it now okay because there, cause, cause there is a place for that. There is a place for that. You know, we see it in Jesus. Yeah, so let me, let me lay down uh, uh, the distinction between three different voices we see in the Bible. Uh, the first is the prophetic voice, which basically says, I'm sorry, that's wrong. What you did is wrong, and the Bible says so. Thus saith the Lord. There's times to do that. Second is what we call the pastoral voice. Again, you don't run up to a car accident, pop your head into the um, window and say, see, you should have been wearing your seatbelts. No, th- there's, a, there's a time that you, you're, you're, you're pastoral. You, you know that this community is hurting even as you disagree with what that community is doing. And then the last one is the persuasive, which is you have cognitively complex views of people. You have empathy. You have credibility. Now, the prophetic the problem we have with it is the prophetic is kind of like you traveling overseas talking to a person who doesn't speak your language and you want to know where the bathroom is but the person doesn't understand you so what you do is you just up the volume right you say where's the bathroom and i think today we've been become so locked into the prophetic that we're right. a one trick rhetorical pony and we need to move away from the prophetic to the persuasive that will set up our ability to tell the truth. Ooh, dang. That's neighbor love gives us the right to speak the truth. So, so let me ask you this. 
if the internet is the new public square, what are three guidelines for how Christians should use it, oh. how Christ followers of Jesus should use social media to, to, be, a, to be a winsome counterpublic? If you could, if you could just prescribe um, uh, a set of practices or postures, what would you, what would you say? Because it seems like most of this is fueled, either fueled by or it happens on social media. So first thing I would do, I do communication consulting. Um, I've been taking notes, Mike, of your communication style. I have a, a list I can share with you later. <laughs> it's like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Sometimes we're just blind to our own communication. We really are. Hmm. I remember one time me and a friend of mine were doing consulting with this one speaker who periodically would rub his armpit. As he's speaking, would just rub his armpit. Fortunately, we were videotaping it because later we said to him, hey, like what's with the rubbing? And he goes, I don't do that. He goes, well, actually you do. And I'm no, I'm not going to shake your hand. Um, but here is the video. <laughs> and he was like, oh, my gosh, I, 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 I did not know I did that. So I would say, first step, have somebody analyze your Internet communication. Are you always prophetic or do you ever kick into the pastoral? Do you ever kick into the winsome persuasion mode? And mm -hmm. sometimes we're just blind to our own communication. Second, I do think we can do listening on the Internet. I do think we can redeem um, uh, Facebook. I think we can redeem our communication in cognitively complex ways. So when I disagree with a person on the Internet, I present a complex view of the person I'm disagreeing with, saying, hey, I may disagree with this atheist, let's say, but man, this, this woman knows her stuff. I've really appreciated some of her work. I've read some of her essays. Uh, I think she's a very sharp thinker. I think she's right on these issues. I happen to take issue with this point, but she is a, uh, she's a good sparring partner. She, she knows her stuff. I think we need to get into the habit of complimentarily speaking about other people, but the church hate a lot of the church hates that kind of thought. They're like, right. why are you giving props to an atheist like Richard Dawkins for crying right. out? Right. And it's well because Dawkins is a complex person. By the way, in our chapter on loose connections, we mention Dawkins, who the prime minister of education in Great Britain wanted to put a King James Bible in every high school and was getting massive pushback, Dawkins called him and said, I want a, a King James Bible in every high school. What are they reading, Harry Potter? I disagree with the book, but it's a great work of antiquity and needs to be in every high school. How can I help? Well, you see, that's a, that's a cognitively complex view of Dawkins, that right. he's not just a person who hates everything we stand for, even though I bitterly disagree with his communication style at times and his content. So let's be cognitively complex when we uh, disagree with each other. Third, let's be compassionate as we communicate. In the book, we talk about a gay cultural critic who criticizes AIDS theater. His job is to go and evaluate AIDS theater where people literally are dying. They, they've chosen wow. to take their last year of their life and be in a play about AIDS. So think about oh that. Oh, my it's goodness. AIDS theater. Now, how yeah. would you like to be the theater critic that reviews it, right? Nope. This. 
it's beautiful what he says in this book. He says, first thing I'll say to these people, hey, hats off to every one of you. I, I so admire that you were so sick and yet you showed up to do this play. I, I admire the fact that in the play handbill, they mentioned the people who have died during the course of this production. And wow. I sit humbly before you and recognize your courage. But I'm a theater critic. So I did have problems with Act Three. I did have problems with how you constructed the set. But that only comes after you say to a person, I have respect for you and I appreciate your passion on this issue and I appreciate your sacrifice, even as I'm about to disagree with one or two aspects of what you have to say. Dang. That's so good, my friend. So so Winsome Persuasion is the book. Who's the publisher? InterVarsity Press Academic. Oh, that well, no no wonder it's a hot seller. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> no, try to write it in a in a non-academic way. We really do. So I, I, I do think the book is accessible. Um, so I would encourage listeners to... Oh, it is. It is. I, I, I endorsed it. I, I need to disclaim that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And that and, and, and that's one of the reasons for no sales, no royalties, no question. Um so, so encourage you to Tim. You also have a you have a have a podcast out uh, part of the Biola thing. What's that one called? Yeah, I'm part of uh, Biola Center for Marriage and Relationships, and the podcast is called The Art of Relationships. And you can find it on iTunes the same uh, same way you find this podcast. So look us up. It's called The Art of Relationships, and everybody cares about relationships. I don't care what your background is. People just care about deeply about these relationships. And so we talk about conflict, forgiveness, how to resolve bitterness, um, how the Internet's affecting our relationships. So check it out. It's called The Art of Relationships. Awesome. I'll Facebook my wife about it. It'll be great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So any, any last words, Andy's last words? Anything, buddy, before we close it up? Uh, No, I mean, I I guess I'll... I'll plug this other this other podcast I've been recently listening to that's amazing. It's called um, Hey guys, stop plugging <laughs> other podcasts. Okay? No, man, no, this is this All right, so what good. is like, it? Tim, your stuff on 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 cognitive complexity is amazing and No, there's this other podcast I'm listening to called Scene on Radio. And it's actually one of the guys from NPR who is, you know, out claims outrageous white privilege and his whole thing was going into having all conversations with other black folks going in saying like I am a person of white privilege and just hearing all of the other things to help him understand all, all the wrongdoing that he's done over his life and his time and so it's it's pretty it's compelling getting to the end of season two where you're just hearing him like okay here's what we've heard and him going through like step by step by step by step all these nuances and come in you know significant complexities about what it requires him to see in his life and to see around him in order to be something of change. And so um, it's just such a welcome idea of, of really how do we handle this stuff so much more complex, uh, complexly. But uh, but yeah, I, I still live in that wrestle okay. of like spending too much time being intellectual about it and philosophical about it versus how often do I put myself face to face with someone and really see the human first instead of the conversation on the other side of the screen. Especially with that mustache. I mean, you should see, guys, I wish you could see the Andy mustache right now. It is like two furry caterpillars are kissing right (laughs) under his nose. It is impressive. 
<laughs> yep, and you're and you're just and you're waiting for them to shed because they, they look unnatural. That's right. Just wait till they're All butterflies. Right. Let me close with one thought, Andy. That what you just said. So if people view listening as condoning, it'll never happen. Yeah. And the yeah. church today is locked in this weird idea that if I listen or read something, it is a form of condoning it. Thus, we never listen to other people for fear of condoning what they have to say. And we've got to get past that. We just have to. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well said, buddy. All right. Well, um, I'm going to recommend a podcast. It's called the Vox Podcast. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, all right. Well, my brothers and sisters, thank you as always uh, for engaging with us. Check out the book when you get a chance. Um, uh, I think we'll just close on that note, Andy Bear. Let's Great. do it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his counsel to you and give you peace unless you are Penn State, in which case may he give you defeat. Amen and amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.